and I love how surfing, um, you're able to find a little slice of everything, you know. Uh, you need great effort, but it's also about letting go. You need to know when to grind and when to accept. You know, there's uh, patience and sort of a meditative state involved, but there's also, uh, you know, believing in yourself. Hi, folks, and welcome to the Undo Anxiety Podcast. As always, I am your host, Dr. John Duffy. And um, if you have listened to this even once, you probably get what I'm uh, trying to accomplish here. Um, the more we kind of talk about the, what makes us anxious internally, culturally, and otherwise, the more we make all of that stuff less taboo, um, the more likely we are to undo and unravel and shake some of that undue anxiety we all suffer. Um, to that end, I am um, very excited to have um, uh, uh, a guest with me today who I think is um, my new guru, life coach, and mentor, uh, Jamal Yogis. Jamal, welcome, man. Thank you so much. Now, Jamal um, is the author of uh, three books, right, Jamal? That's right. The, the titles are Saltwater Buddha, The Fear Projects, the Fear Project, rather, and your new book is All Our Waves Are Water, Stumbling Toward Enlightenment and the Perfect Ride. Do I have that correct? You got it. Nicely you, done. You know how to, <laughs> you, you come up with cool titles, man. Those are all outstanding. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, you know, I always title them at the end and sort of, uh, uh, but they are what they are. I appreciate the compliment. Absolutely. Um, and I, uh, I've had the good fortune to do a little binge reading in the last um, oh couple of days, and I love your style and I love your messages. So if it's okay with you, let's get right to it. Um, Absolutely. Now, you did something interesting. Most of us, when we were teenagers, we kind of did what we were expected to do. We went to school, we applied to colleges, we did. Um, there, there's kind of a track that's uh, expected of most of us by mom, dad, culture, society, and everything else. Most of us followed that path. You you chose a different path. Do you mind just sharing with our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I was on, you know, the, the path that everybody else was on and growing up in suburbia, more or less, right. although I was a military brat uh, and we had lived in the Azores, Portugal when I was about three to six and my dad uh, was a surfer. So we were kind of living the, the beach life island dream. You know, it's not Hawaii, but the Azores is beautiful and uh, out there. Then we came to Sacramento, um, which was a fine place to grow up. But it's the kind of place where teenagers start to go stir crazy and are like, I got to get out of Dodge. You know, everywhere <laughs> looks better. <laughs> everywhere starts to look better. Right. Um I wasn't the bad kid, John. I was just the one to always get caught. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, uh, take your word for that, Jamal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I had some unconscious desire for a change, but um, I was enchanted by and really uh, frustrated with the high school popularity contest that I was, I could see that I was so caught up with it and I was criticized critical of myself for being caught in it, right. but I was also couldn't get out. And I felt like that was part of why I was on a DUI for probation. You know, I just needed a change. And to be honest, I had, I started having dreams about, uh, islands and water. And I don't know if I was hearkening back to this time when the family was whole in the Azores, you know, before my parents divorced, but 
I used my impulsive 16 year old brain to buy a one way ticket to Maui. <laughs> and wow. I, the goal was learn to surf, but it was, you know, it was a much, it was much more than that underneath. Um, and, and that's what I write about in my first book. Yeah. Um, such a, such a gutsy move. And, um, and I think a lot of us would cop to like, you know, well, I would say I wasn't the bad kid and I wish I had been <laughs> a little more uh, irreverent uh, within my family. Um, so, so I get that there was, there was a call. Um, and I think a lot of us would argue that oh, during my teen years, you know, I was, I was called towards something different or bigger. Um, but, you know, uh, convention held me back from that. Um, and, I, and I know that, that um, your parents divorced and there were some difficulties in your family. Is that, in the end, what you think propelled you um, all the way to Hawaii, or were there other factors as well? You know, it's one of those big mysteries. I think the conventional explanation, um, or, or psychological one, which I, I talk about in my book, is that you know my dad had learned to surf in Hawaii. He was in the Navy there. Uh, we always heard great stories about how much he loved Hawaii, how much he loved surfing. Yes, I had become estranged from him since the divorce. I, I blamed it on him, um, and sort of took my mom's side, and and so was really angry. Hawaii popped up as the place I needed to go. By coincidence, it wasn't my mom who flew over to come find me, and and nobody knew. I wouldn't tell them which island I was on. It was my dad. You're kidding. And, and, uh, and it was your dad who came, huh? My dad who came. We had a week there. Um, he he was very skillful. He showed up and he didn't say, all right, you know, you punk, I found you. <laughs> You're going to military school. <laughs> right. He was, he, he eased into it. He said, hey, you know, let's, let's have a week in Hawaii. We made it here. <laughs> I took the week off from work. And, uh, and we really... We, we did rebond in that week. And I think to some degree, I was looking for that. I, I look at life often as sort of tiered where there's these simultaneously le- simultaneous levels of truth. And I think that's the sort of psychological, psychological explanation. I think there was also just a yearning um, to go out on my own, to follow my dreams, to take a risk, uh, uh, to get out of Dodge and to... Um, it was really the beginning of, of my self inquiry of yeah. trying to figure out, you know, who am I? What is truth? What do I really believe? And I think I needed to break away with a big, you know, in the book I'm reading Siddhartha and I'm reading about how the Buddha, you know, uh, leaves the palace and he leaves everything. And he does something that's seemingly very irresponsible and kind of a jerk move. <laughs> right, right. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but true. Um, but, and, and, and so I think I, I was relating that, you know, I was, I was on my own uh, quest and there's a lot of ego often in that initial breakaway. Uh, but um, sometimes you got to do it um, just to, to take the first step. I, I love the the imagery of it. Um, you know that its reality is striking to me because just the idea of breaking away and how you broke away quite literally in so many ways from the mainland, from the mainstream, you know, and then this was your way of. There, there's something so poetic about this this a method you created for reconnecting with your father that you maybe subconsciously or unconsciously intended to create, but. Um, you know, we happen to be recording this right around Father's Day, and I'm just thinking, like, how, what, a, what an odd gift to you and your dad to have that week, you know, and and what a, what a 
uh, a curious instinct in him not to send you to military school, but to decide, you know what? We, we, we got Hawaii for a week. Let's do this. Right. And he's taught me something that I, I use as a parent now, um, which is, you know, you know, as kids, we want our feelings to be acknowledged by our parents. And oftentimes what we resist is the fact that, you know, they are, we're not being seen for who we are. And, and, uh, so I've got a three-year-old, and you know, I don't know if this is true. Um, maybe you could tell me as a doctor, but a developmental <laughs> psychologist told me the other day that three-year-olds have uh, basically a, a brain structure similar to a sociopath. <laughs> they're very, <laughs> very, very impulsive. And you know, they're constantly having tantrums and also constantly having these surges of great joy that we love. And, uh, and you can't control it as a parent. And oftentimes you want to be able to control it and patch it up when they're sad. And I've taken to when my three-year-old, you know, the Warriors, when they lost to the Cavs the other night, he just, right. he couldn't let go of the tantrum. And, you know, I go back to, to my dad acknowledging me in that moment. And, and instead of saying, Evan, it's going to be okay. They're still going to win the championship. You know, he wanted to be in it. I said, you know what? It is sad, Evan. Let's be sad together for a minute. You know, I make a little sad face with him. That's what he loves. It's the fastest thing to turn him around is like, hey, dad's just going to just going to sit here with me and be sad. I love and, that, um, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's something and, powerful it, it, to that too, right? Allowing like, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to pretend that this is something it's not, you know, like LeBron took us tonight and we're going to have to live with that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it doesn't always work. You know, if he's right? sad because he says, you know, I'm not going to school today. You can't say, you know, sometimes you got to say, Evan, get in the car. Right. But uh, <laughs> for certain things, it works. I might be jumping the gun here, but, um, in in light of that moment of that week when you were a kid, how how differently do you parent than you think you might have otherwise? Is that a fair question? Yeah, I mean, it is a fair question. I mean, I don't know because I don't know who I would have would have been otherwise. But I was I was darn lucky um, that I took this very unorthodox pass path from running away and onward. I mean, I've never held really a traditional nine to five. I mean, I've been a staff writer at magazines and stuff, but even that was pretty, um, patchwork. And my parents have always been, um, people who said, follow your passion. Don't worry about the money because the money isn't where the happiness is. It's mm. in doing something where, you know, on your deathbed, you'll be able to say, I did what I came to do. And, you know, that, has certainly informed me as a parent. I don't know, uh, what it would be otherwise, but you know, I will say this. I do think <laughs> I probably put my, I know I put my parents through hell in that week and I'm probably going to have some karma coming back. To me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, right? When the, time will tell. <laughs> time will tell. Uh, well, I suspect you have three, uh, very, very fortunate kids for, for all your experience. Um, I'm curious, you know, um, it is not lost on me that um, an awful lot of your work seems to revolve around not just athletic um, pursuits, but surfing in particular. Clearly, there's some meaning here. Um, what, what's with all the surfing, man? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, well, A, it's, 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 it's full of metaphor. Yeah. You know, similar to baseball, surfing gets a lot of literature around it because, uh, 
you know, it's just, there's so many metaphors and I've clearly been interested in philosophy, um, Eastern mysticism, psychology. I mean, the gamut. I, and I love how surfing, um, you're able to find a little slice of everything, you know, uh, you need great effort, but it's also about letting go. You need to know when to grind and when to accept, you know, there's, uh, patience and sort of a meditative state involved, but there's also, um, you know, believing in yourself, you know, all the things that sports have, yep. it's a microcosm out there for life. And I find life often hard. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> I, I think most <laughs> but, of us would agree with you. <laughs> I think oftentimes you know, it's, 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 uh, it's difficult. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> you know, land life can be, uh, it throws us a lot of challenges and so does the ocean. But in the ocean, you know, you don't take it so personal. You're, uh, you're able when you do come out, you still, you feel refreshed. You know, I just came out before our interview. It's still the best way to start my day over. <laughs> yeah. I and I take those little lessons and I try to bring them into parenting. I try to bring them into my writing. Um, you know, it's just that thing that I do that brings me a lot of happiness on its own. I don't have to try to make it fun. And so I think if you have one thing like that, it's good. And then, uh, because I started writing about my own life, surfing yeah. just play, plays a role. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's not lost to me that you said, you know, kind of like this is a way to reset my day. Um, if you're having a difficult day, can surfing bring you right back? Can you kind of restart and, you know, um, come in with a different attitude than you had when you woke up? It is like magic. I am waiting for the day when I go out there and I'm just like, eh, <laughs> it hasn't happened. Hasn't happened huh? <laughs> I don't know. There's so much to the ocean. Um, you know, we ourselves are, our, our blood is basically the consistency of salt water. I mean, this is where we came from. This is where life comes from. There's all these health benefits. Um, when you get in the water, if you look at a person in an fMRI who's swimming or just, you know, floating, there's a much more distributed set of points. Um, we're, we're often able to sort of let go. When you look at the science of awe, what gives people awe and feelings of like grace and unity, um, water and music are basically at the top of the list. Mm. Um, so water's just, it's an amazing thing. And then you also get the benefit of exercise, you know, which a lot of people, get, you know, I can also go to the gym or go to a yoga class or, um, and get that restart. But for me personally, and maybe I'm just a water person, it's, it is like, it's like magic. I, I just, I'm grateful to live where I do, where I can have three kids and still run across the streets to the beach, oh, Jamal. even get 20 minutes. <laughs> I so, I so envy you that. I think that's the coolest thing. And I think I'm a water guy as well. And I, you know, when I get to the ocean, I'm so I'm in Chicago, I'm in the middle of the, you know, there's not much water right here other than Lake Michigan. But you know, when I get to um, a coast, um, there is this excitement that kind of comes over me. And I think we, uh, most of us become like kids again. You know, I, I, I feel healed when I get to the ocean. I'm excited. Um, I feel joyful and hopeful. And there's something about the rhythm of the waves that just is, is so um, reliable and, uh, and peace-giving that um, I think there's something kind of fundamental that draws people to the water, 
um, and, it, and it makes us better. And I always worry about people who are in all the time, as opposed to, you know, outside some of the time, you know, like you, when you talk about going to the gym, like sometimes I'll do that, but it, it doesn't, the vibe that you walk away from, you might feel a little healthier, you get a sweat in, that's great, but there's something about being in the water that is so healing on every level um, that, you know, I, I think it's probably the best place for almost all of us to be. And part of it, I think, is really primal, like that this is what we're made of. And, you know, we're kind of coming back to it. Does that resonate? Absolutely. I mean, there's a, a reason, you know, poets and uh, mystics and everybody have talked about this sense of return. You know, E. e. Cummings, whatever we lose, like a you or a me, it's always ourselves we find in the sea. Yes. Uh, you know, Hakun Yasutani, this Zen master, talked about, you know, the self is a wave, the Buddha nature or the true nature is the sea. Um, so, and we find again and again, people find these uh, moments of uh, not necessarily dissolution, but a, a feeling of greater unity, a feeling of greater connection to others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, I don't know any greater joy than that when you sort of get out of your own storytelling and feel kind of in harmony uh, and connected to, you know, life your, and your fellow humans. And Water is one, it's like, it seems to me to be a shortcut. You know, I'm, I'm good friends with this uh, biologist, Wallace J. Nichols, who wrote a book called Blue Mind. And it's all about the psychology and science of being in water and around water. Mm. And he talks about the fact that, that water gives us a lot of the things that um, mystics and such have sought through sensory depriva deprivation, solitude, um, these big peak moments. But the nice thing about the water is you don't necessarily have to have the discipline to go out there and do it. You don't have to deal with some of the loneliness of solitude. It's like right. you're just going out for you don't have to, you're just going out for a swim. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, so for those of us who live in the world, you know, it's kind of like a shortcut to a glimpse of what maybe that would be if you were more, uh, you know, going for the, you know, some great yogi. Um, and, uh, you know, having done uh, a lot, you know, a lot of meditation myself, I think there are differences, but I do think there's something fundamental, a fundamental return to the primal uh, beingness of of humanity that, that hap can happen in the water. It can happen other places too. Yeah. But, uh, I dig the ocean. I dig, to, I dig it too. And I, I, I love the, the feeling of just being kind of like, um, being a little out of control, like, you know, knowing, knowing I can't control these waves, these waves, these waves kind of own me and I can just kind of allow them to take me, you know, um, and then, uh, and by and large, I will end up safely back on shore, you know, like, I, I like the idea of trusting that, that, that water will take care of me in a way. Yeah, there aren't a lot of places where you can, you have to do that. And you learn that lesson instantly. I mean, in work and in life, we know that if we white knuckle something, uh, you know, it often doesn't turn out, the result doesn't turn out as we want. And it's better to sort of, you know, stay loose, stay attentive, but, you know, not uh, grip down too hard. But it's hard to intuit that sometimes, you know, in the office. But when you're out in a wave, it's like you learn pretty quickly when you get pummeled. If you fight it, you run out of air more quickly. You don't. It's right, kind of right, right. You, 
you're not stronger than the ocean. And so you have to relax. You have to um, be, uh, you know, accepting of this power that is greater than yourself. And so I think that there's, that's why I use surfing a lot in talking about meditation as well, because, you know, here you are, when you sit down for a mindfulness practice, one of the first things you see is that you're not in control of these thoughts that are coming through or these emotions. I mean, they're rolling through <laughs> whether you like it or not. And so it's, it can be similar. If you fight against them, you can, uh, you know, a big moment of fear, a big moment of jealousy. It's like putting a hat on a hat, you know, you can just make it worse. But if you do that acceptance thing, which is what you have to do in the water as well with a wave, uh, something else happens that I think transforms it more quickly. And maybe I, I think you may have just started to answer um, the next question that kind of is roiling around in my head because it's interesting, you know, you, you, your first book, Saltwater Buddha, has this certain vibe to it and you, you, from the title on and All Our Waves Are Water, this, your, your new book. In the middle of that, it, it kind of strikes me as curious, this book called The Fear Project, you know, um, where you really address like what we're afraid of and how to live fully through our fears um, how did you decide to write about fear of all things? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it is a departure from these other two, which are more storytelling, kind of writing from the heart. And this was a book not only about fear, <laughs> but about uh, where I really took a scientific frame and I went and interviewed all these people like you, you know, these big wake <laughs> neuro neuroscientists and psychologists. I really, um, you know, uh, a couple things. We go through different phases, and I had gone through a pretty tough breakup after Saltwater Buddha. And I, what I say in the Fear Project at the start is fear when you're really in it and you're in the downward spiral of it, you forget what you, the wisdom you had. Right. And you don't trust anything. It's like you have no reference point anymore. And um, I was in that uh, place and I was also thinking about what book I was going to do next. And I just thought, what is this? You know, what? And because I think I wasn't trusting my usual go-tos, you know, just go surfing, just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, just, right. just relax, man, be happy. It was like, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get a fallback. Like, what do we know? Like, what do we know about the brain and how people do find courage, um, in much scarier situations than the one I'm in. And why is it that when we're afraid, and even if we know the fear story is bogus, like mm -hmm. I'd been through breakups before, I knew I'd get better, but it didn't change the feeling, this clamped down feeling in my body. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to figure that out and, and get all the tools in my toolkit that I could to deal with it. Um, so that was really where the second book came from. And... Um, and after I wrote it, I really missed, you know, and I think when I was feeling more myself, I really missed, uh, you know, just telling stories, which is kind of what the third book gets back to. I, I kind of I kind of figured. Um, and I want to get to the third book. I have two quick questions about the, about that second book. First of all, I love that idea about the fear story is bogus. I, I think that, you know, on the whole, if we can hold that in our lens of awareness and a lot of us, the fear story is bogus. You know, by and large, that's true. Um, but you, you talk about a little bit in there about the groupthink of fear, which uh, I, I think is a little epidemic these days. Um, do you mind speaking to that just a little bit? Yeah. Uh, 
you know, the fear story, uh, particularly in a social context, usually is bogus. And I think it's because, you know, I think you have to be careful of evolutionary explanations, but this, it seems to be that if we evolved in the Serengeti and these tribes and we were so dependent on the tribe, if you were ostracized from the tribe, uh, that was a death sentence. And mm-hmm. so it, it has been in our DNA uh, to want to belong. And right. so we'll do, uh, we'll do anything to belong. I mean, and you look at these studies that they've done where, um, you basically have, you know, say three lines of varying length. And, um, the answer is very obvious, which is the longest, but you see, uh, a, um, that more people have answered wrong you know, you will be likely to go along with that wrong answer. Right, <laughs> right. We'll go with, just to be part of the crowd, right? Uh, right. And I mean, there's countless examples like this. They've done studies where, you know, if you're in a group that has a political leaning and um, you don't necessarily, you start to hew to that group's beliefs, um, but oftentimes the group will start to... Uh, sort of coalesce around the most extreme member in that group, mm-hmm. which is a, uh, you know, a really disconcerting trend uh, when you look at our political situation right now. <laughs> yes, so, I would agree, yes. Um, so my thesis really in the Fear Project is that, look, we're saddled with a biology that's going to lie to us a lot. Um, we're using a fear system um, that, rats and snakes uh, use to survive in the wild. And we have this huge prefrontal cortex that can imagine, you know, umpteen future scenarios. And yet we're running those future scenarios and possibilities through this ancient amygdala system that's then sending out adrenaline messages that are telling us to fight or flee. (laughs) And it's just, that's the biology we have. It's not perfect. It's like having a Mac computer, uh, you know, it's like having a caveman run a Mac computer. Right, right. And that's, and that's <laughs> yeah. what you're saddled with. And that's okay. It can work beautifully. But if we don't understand it, it will take advantage of us. And that's why I think in the political scene, you have people taking advantage, politicians become expert at taking advantage of the caveman running the Mac computer. And they just run your emotions. And they don't know they're doing it. They just know that what works. Right. And uh, and if if we don't understand our fear biology, we'll we'll fall victim to it. My God, Jamal, that is that is beautifully put. Uh, and and the and the caveman running the Mac is a, is a great metaphor for what we're dealing with in our brains. Right. That there's this ancient um, uh, amygdala that 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 kicks in fear when we don't need it to kick in fear to the extent it does. And then we, um, well, we make decisions that aren't always the best. And, uh, and we tend toward the edges of the bell curve when the center is probably a better place for us to be. Really brilliant. That's a great point. Um, so, so you get back to, in all our waves of water, you get back to storytelling. And you're in a different place in your life than you were during the saltwater Buddha days, right? You are you are a, a father now. You're a parent. You're a husband. Um, how how is this? Um, how are these stories different in light of all that? Well, um, the introduction picks up where I am now, and I'm talking about you know parenting and and whatnot. 
But then I do flash back and pick up basically where Saltwater Buddha left off. I think there were a lot of stories that I wanted to tell um, from years of my 20s, characters I'd met, you know, the sort of the the one of the central characters is this guy named Sonam Wangdu, who I meet in India when I'm about 23, my last year of college. And um, this guy was pivotal in my life because uh, I was going through yet another breakup. I had like basically two, <laughs> two big breakups in my life. I've written about both of them because I think they were uh, you know, a breakup, it's kind of like a death, you know, it's like losing a loved one. And, um, yeah. And, and writing is catharsis. So anyway, sure. um, there I am, uh, in India, I've just lost this woman who I was supposed to come to India with and I'm heartbroken and I'm just, I'm basically shut down. I can't feel I'm numb and I'm angry. And, um, I meet this guy, Sonam, who's a, been a monk for 15 years. He's my age. And he also is heartbroken. And he basically lost his family. He trekked over the Himalayas when he was 11 to ordain as a monk with the Dalai Lama, but then lost touch with his family, with the Chinese occupation, etc. cetera. Um, he is also heartbroken, wants to find his family. But the way that he's grieving, mm-hmm. um, and I, I started to tell the pivotal story is like we're, we're hiking in the mountains. And this is after I've gotten to know him for a while. And he finds some snow and he says, Oh, Jama, this, this India snow, uh, very same, same Tibet snow, you know, many thinking my family and he sheds a tear and I put my arm around him and I'm like, Sonam, I'm so sorry. You can't, you can't go back and find them, you know, and I want to help him. And he, he looks at, he starts laughing. <laughs> and in that moment he looks at me and he goes, uh, Jama, you funny. This very sad, no problem. <laughs> and and, uh, and it was just like a light went on, and it became the theme of that trip. Where I was like, I was finally learning at 23 after you know flipping the bird at emotion for most of my life and how to grieve. Yeah. And uh, and so I wanted to tell those stories in a way where you get to know these characters who are really rich. Um, and I try to go as best as possible to go back to my mindset then, you know, I'm sure I project a lot from what I know now. But, oh, sure. Uh, but know, still, it sounds, I did like my the, best. Right, it sounds like the heart of it you, you got. And so is, is there, for you, was there a big takeaway from like, kind of like no longer flipping the bird at emotion and finally like accepting like, okay, maybe feeling something isn't the problem. Maybe he was exactly right on that mountain. Yeah, it was a big, there was a big takeaway. Um, and I taught, I, I then, you know, end up going on a long meditation retreat and realizing that it's not as easy as just, okay, now I'm going to feel it's like we have, there are layers of the onion and our busyness and our sort of, um, uh, the way we distract ourselves often keep us from feeling emotions that are buried. Yeah. And so it's on this retreat that I end up, you know, finally think, you know, finally being able to cry uh, about the breakup. And it's in the process of that, um, you know, I joke a lot in the book about I go into the silent retreat, it becomes a sobbing retreat. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm crying about Sati, my ex, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just like the floodgates open and I'm, 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 I'm seeing images of my parents' divorce of, you know, uh, not feeling included in kindergarten, whatever, all these things that were buried. 
and uh and just feeling it man it's like i finally get out and i feel good again i feel good again and it was like and 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 i think the takeaway is really that as i'm sobbing and finally feeling and giving myself the space to that that sobbing is good it's like it's not sad it's like a good feeling and i think the the thing that uh, is really painful is the numbness and the feeling of like not knowing not being able to feel and uh but i still you know it's not easy to do we just we live in a hyper uh speedy world you know i just lost my father this will be my first father's day without my dad and um thank you and you know, I have three kids now. You don't have time to run off to a 10-day meditation retreat. So you figure out little ways to, to really grieve. You know, it's like for me, I got to, if I put on a Leonard Cohen song, it's like my dad's there and I can finally feel like, and uh, so, you know, you figure out shortcuts, I guess. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> no, I get it. Um, and it's it's actually a, kind of a beautiful story. And it makes me think about um, just the idea of the catharsis of feeling and and it makes me think a little bit about masculinity too and what we're, what's expected of men culturally and that you know like uh, many of us feel like we're not allowed that moment to fall apart and to cry and to you know let that catharsis kind of co- code us you know um, and then we get locked into this grief and, uh, and not uh, not even knowing it, I think, an awful lot of the time, instead of really allowing ourselves to like live through it. And I think there's an element of courage to do, doing what you did and, and creating that space so that you could grieve not just the loss of that relationship, but you know the loss of everything that you'd lost over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, you said it, and, and, and I should say I didn't realize this, but I wouldn't have been able to write about that publicly had I not written the fear project because, okay, that happened. I cried through a meditation retreat. I I wasn't ready to tell people that in in a public (laughs) forum. I think until I had got, I mean, in a big way, the fear project to me was getting out this vestige of like, I got to be macho Um, because I was, I was approaching I wanted to shatter fear, be more courageous. And also, you know, go surf big waves. (laughs) And, um, I didn't really understand what that was about. Um, but a big part of it was wanting to be like, you know, as men, we want to be recognized as courageous. Um, but oftentimes that what we're confusing courage with bravado, I was definitely doing that during the fear project, but sometimes you just got to get it out. You know, it's like we're men, this is the biology we have. And so you find little ways to be a warrior. I had to go surf Mavericks. That was my rite of passage. Doing that and having it done, I think it allowed me to be like, you know what? I actually don't care about that. <laughs> that's not <laughs> right. That's not. I did it. I done it. I don't need to prove it anymore. Um, and I can maybe be a little more vulnerable, which I think is that's frankly where uh, the courage I'm more interested in now, because I think, you know, when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, we allow ourselves to connect and and see each other's humanity. Yeah, man, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, and that, that's a pretty good punchline. Are there more books, Jamal? Are, are there more, more books coming? Or are we looking I mean, at a trilogy? I, 
I, you know, I've always learned uh, not to not to to uh, attach the plans too much because you never know. But this does seem to be my my job for the time being. So yeah, there's some more stories cooking. That's awesome. Um, I so appreciate your time here today, and um, I just I, I think I'm speaking probably for anybody who can hear our voices. I love your vibe and I, I love your writing. Um, I encourage everybody listening to pick up um, first, you know, your newest book, All Our Waves Are Water and The Fear Project and Saltwater Buddha. Um, if people want to find your books, learn more about you um, somewhere online, where, where, what's their best bet? Where should they head? I'm in all the social places, you know, Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. And, uh, you know, the books, fortunately, are available anywhere books are sold. So, uh, you know, Google All Our Waves or Water and you'll you'll find it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, um, I'm hoping to talk to you again on this podcast if you'll join me again sometime in the future because I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. Oh, I'd love to. Anytime. All right, Jamal. Thanks so much. And um, folks, uh, this is the Undo Anxiety Podcast. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Podbean, uh, Stitcher, LiveLeadPlay.com, and WGN+. Plus. Um, you can find me at uh, DrJohnDuffy.com. And um, if you have a thought about the podcast or if you'd like to be a guest, write me there at johngduffy at drjohnduffy.com. As always, I appreciate your time. On behalf of Jamal and myself, thank you so much, and I will talk to you next time. 